Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here this morning. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you. Before we open up God's Word, I want to take a moment to thank one of our staff members. Griselda Chin has been serving so faithfully as our finance manager since 2018. Uh, we have exciting news. God's opened up an opportunity for her to work in a local tax services office as a, uh, an enrolled agent. And it's exciting for her and her family what this means is that she'll need to transfer out of, transition out of her uh, role here as our part-time finance manager. Uh, we're just so thankful that she has served uh, with excellence and grace over the last uh, four-plus years in our church. And this means that we have an open uh, position at our church. And if you'd like to learn more about uh, our part-time finance manager position, and if you have experience in accounting, um, and finance. You can find out all the information on our website, efreedb.org slash employment. All right, with that, I'm excited to open up God's Word this morning, and today's title for our message is Redemption in Ruth. Redemption in Ruth, and as Rob said, we're continuing our series, Storyline. God's purpose fulfilled through people like us. And today we come to the inspiring story of this young woman who put her faith, her trust in God. And maybe some of you are familiar with the story of Ruth. Maybe you've studied it in detail. Maybe you've read through this short book. Maybe you've read through it many times. Or perhaps you're not familiar with the story of Ruth. You've never read through it. I'm excited for today because... Every time I open up the book of Ruth, every time I study to uh, share a lesson or a message on the book of Ruth, God, he teaches me something new. I always walk away having gained new insights into this book. Now, the story of Ruth, it, it's been called by some uh, one of the most beautiful short stories of all time. Others have labeled it one of the greatest love stories of all time. And it's got all the ingredients of a uh, great love story. You have a young woman. She meets a young man from another country. They get married. And you would think, well, they live happily ever after. But there's tragedy. And every love story has a tragic element, right? In this case, the young man, he dies, leaving behind a young widow. Eventually, God comes into this woman's life and rescues her and provides another man and brings her happiness. Now, on the surface, when you look at it from a literary point of view, it's a brilliant piece of writing. It is just amazing from a literary point of view. But the story of Ruth is not merely literature. You and I know it as part of God's eternal word. It is active and it has an eternal, eternal perspective for us. And so today, if we have eyes to see, ears to hear, you're going to see God's story, his amazing story, as depicted in the book of Ruth. And more than anything else, I want you to walk away today knowing this that more than anything else, the book of Ruth depicts so beautifully God's plan 
of redemption. God's plan of redemption. Last week we looked at the account of Adam and Eve, and we learned that the God of creation is also the God of redemption. In fact, the entire Bible from start to finish is one unified story of God's redemptive plan. And because redemption is the overarching theme in the book of Ruth, it's important for us to understand the concept of redemption and how the book of Ruth fits into God's overall plan of redemption. Now, at its core, the, the word redemption, it refers to a payment, a payment to secure one's release. And, and this basic root word is where we get our English word ransom. Now, centuries ago, the term ransom, it could refer to a number of different things. It could refer to uh, the loosening or the release of certain things. For example, centuries ago, people would attach the word ransom to clothing. You would loosen your clothing. Now, this Thursday, after we have our Thanksgiving feast, we're going to have to ransom our clothes. We're going to have to loosen them a little bit. Or if you're smart, you'll just wear your stretchy pants to dinner and you'll be good. And so ransom referred to the loosening of clothes. But also at that time, it also referred to the loosening of animals. Sadly, some people would tie animals to posts, leave them there to die. But then certain compassionate people would come along and they would ransom or loosen the rope and allow the animal to go free. Eventually, over time, the word ransom, it began to be used to refer to the release of prisoners of war. And today, you and I know it most often associated with uh, kidnapping and a ransom note. Now, when the biblical authors in the Old Testament, when they wrote about the concept of ransom or redemption, they knew that their audience, they knew that the readers had a clear understanding of this concept of ransom, of loosening, of releasing, because redemption was all around them in their culture. During the era in which the book of Ruth was written, if you owed a debt and you could not pay that debt, you could be sold into slavery to pay off that debt. But there was another way out. If you had a relative who would come along and pay the debt for you, you would be freed from that debt. And that person, that family member, that relative, would be known as your kinsman redeemer. Now, this principle of redemption, it not only applied to the self, it also applied to property, and specifically land, Land in the Old Testament was a big, important concept in God's overall plan. I mean, land is important for us today. In the Old Testament, it was actually the very part of God's plan. And so this idea of redemption applied to the land. So whenever a land or a piece of land was sold, a deed was drawn up, and there would be a clause in the deed saying that, Within a specified period of time, the land could be bought back by a kinsman redeemer and then brought back into 
the family. We'll talk more about land a little bit later on. But that's the general backstory to the book of Ruth. That sets the stage now for the story. And so I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 1. And I'll read to you verses 1 and 2. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. So, in this opening passage, we're introduced to this family from Bethlehem who fell on hard times due to a severe famine. Ironically, the name Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And speaking of names, in the Old Testament, names held great significance. Names often defined people. Sadly, a man named Elimelech did not live up to his name. The name Elimelech means this. My God is king. That was the meaning of the name Elimelech. Isn't that, isn't that a great name? My God is king. What a great name. Now, when you and I in the 21st century, when we read names in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament for that matter, it's not always easy for us to understand the meaning of the names because we're reading it in our English translations. Come to think of it, even for us today, even your name, my name, sometimes just the name itself doesn't give us an idea of the meaning. Sometimes we have to go and do deep research into the origin and the meaning of our name. Now, some names are very uh, straightforward and very descriptive. For example, my older sister's name is Hope. It's a beautiful name, very descriptive. Here at our church, we have a number of individuals with the name Grace. It's a wonderful name, very descriptive. But when we look at the Old Testament names, it's kind of hard for us to know on the surface the meaning. Now, when Elimelech walked around the little town of Bethlehem, Everybody knew his name. You see, because his name in their language was very, very descriptive and very explicit. My God is king. So whenever Elimelech walked down the main road, hey, there goes my God is king. My God is king. There he comes. Except, in his case, Elimelech didn't live up to his name. In other words, he did not trust in his king. Now, how do we know this? In verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The book of Ruth sits within the time frame of what is known as the judges, the period of the judges in the Old Testament. And during this time, 
There was a pattern that the Israelites repeated over and over, and it was known as what we would call the cycle of sin. And Pastor Luke mentioned this in our opening message. The cycle of sin went something like this during the period of the judges. The people of God would sin. And oftentimes that sin involved idolatry. As a result, God would bring judgment because of their sin. And then the people would cry out, they would repent, and God would bring deliverance. So that was a cycle that we saw in the Old Testament during the period of the judges. Sin, idolatry, judgment. People cry out, and God delivers them. Over and over, this cycle kept going on and on and on. The book of Ruth fits right there during one of these cycles. And so the famine in the city of the house of bread was part of the judgment because of their sin. So Elimelech had a decision to make. Does he trust in his God, the king, and stay patient? Or does he take matters into his own hand? And of course, we know what happens. He takes matters into his own hands and he moves his family to the neighboring country of Moab. He takes his wife, Naomi, and Naomi's name means the pleasant one. It's a wonderful name. So my God is king, takes the pleasant one along with their two sons, except Unfortunately, uh, their two sons, they weren't given the best names in the world. Okay. Malon's name means sick one, sickly, okay. sickness. So Malon was a sickly son. If you think that's bad, well, his brother Kilion, his name means wasting away. <laughs> unfortunate names. Parents, please don't name your kids. Sick one and wasting away one. Well, those two names would prove to be prophetic later on. So this family of four moves to the neighboring country of Moab. And it's important to note that the Moabites and the Israelites, they did not get along. They were hostile. They were considered enemies of each other. The Moabites did not worship the same God that the Israelites worshipped. So they were considered enemies. Elimelech moved his family to Moab, not as missionaries, okay? He didn't move his family there to spread the name of God. He went there because he did not trust his God. He did not trust that God would provide for him in Bethlehem. And there's a lesson here for every one of us. You know, far too often, here's our pattern. We grow impatient. That impatience leads us to take matters into our own hands. And then we end up making foolish decisions. That's why we have sayings like, fools rush in. 
fools rush in. When we trust our own discontent hearts, we tend to, even though we don't admit it, we tend to manipulate things for our gain. We tend to justify things. We tend to short, take shortcuts, drive right over the roadblocks. We don't heed the warning signs. You won't ever hear a statement like this, okay? You will never hear, fools take time to prayerfully consider the consequences and make spiritual decisions. You'll never hear that. Fools, they act, and they deal with the consequences later. They manipulate, they take shortcuts, they try to play God, and whenever you try to play God, it doesn't end well. And so Elimelech impatiently takes his family to Moab. You see, we could easily miss this part in verse 1 if we just kind of glance over, but this is an important fact that he impatiently takes his family to Moab. Now let's see what happens next in chapter 1, verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So, after the death of Elimelech, Naomi is left with her two sons. Eventually, they marry Moabite women. Life continues on for ten years until tragedy strikes again. This time, tragedy takes both brothers' lives, leaving behind Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, three widows with no blood relation. And so what are they to do? Eventually, Naomi gets the word that the famine has ended in Bethlehem. In other words, God has come to the rescue of his people. He has heard their cries. He has delivered them from their sin. So the famine has ended. Let's pick it up now in verse 7 of chapter 1. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 17. It's a lengthy portion, but it's important for us to, to hear this in its entirety. Chapter 1, starting in verse 7. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, 
said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, if that is not the most amazingly, passionately inspiring response, then I don't know what is. Absolutely beautiful words from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Do you know what's happening here? There's a conversion happening here. Ruth makes a commitment to give her life to the God of Naomi. There's a conversion story right here. You know what this tells me about God? I don't want us to miss this. This conversion tells me something very important about God, and it's this. God has the power to overrule. He has the power, in other words, to intervene. Elimelech made the impatient and the wrong decision to move his family to Moab. That was against God's will. And his family, along the way, they paid dearly for it. But even in the midst of a wrong decision, and even in the midst of tragedy, God is sovereign and he is always working. Even in the midst of our wrong decisions, God has a power to overrule. And so he uses this young woman from an enemy nation to play one of the most major roles in the history of the nation of Israel and the world. Do you know that Ruth is only one of two women who has a book in the Bible named after her? The other being Esther. And I'll go even one step further. Ruth is the only Gentile in the entire Old Testament to have a book named after her. Remember, when Ruth accompanies Naomi back to Bethlehem, she's a foreigner. She's a Gentile. She's going to an unfamiliar land, not with her mother, not with her sisters, with her mother-in-law. Just simply amazing. She's going to a foreign land to foreign people with her mother-in-law. She could have gone back to her own parents, found a husband in her own land, continued to worship her own gods. But God overruled. He intervened. You know what this also tells me about Ruth? It tells me that Ruth surrendered herself completely to God. God overruled poor decisions. Ruth obediently surrendered herself completely 
to God. And again, there's a, another lesson for us here. Ruth gave herself to God, and Ruth did not follow her heart. She followed God's will. She did not follow her heart. She followed God's will. Now, I'm going to talk more about what that actually means later on in this message. But have you ever made a decision that from a human standpoint, it just didn't make sense, but you knew it was the absolute will of God? From a human standpoint, it did not make sense. From a human standpoint, that decision, it may have cost you financial security. It just did not make sense. From a human standpoint, it, it may have cost you uh, just security and stability. And maybe you've made a decision in your life where you've had loved ones come to you and say, are you sure about that? You sure you want to give that all up? Go where? I mean, can't you just, uh, can't you just live a normal life and worship God? But you want to you surrender everything to God and go somewhere else and serve him there? From a human standpoint, those things don't make sense. From a human standpoint, we need to make sure that all our investments are in order. Make sure that we have a comfortable retirement. Make sure that we take care of us and ours. And from a human standpoint, sometimes when we make decisions according to the will of God, it just doesn't make sense. That's why Ruth, she didn't follow her heart. She followed God's will. She surrendered herself completely to God. She trusted him fully. And she did not worry about the consequences. Now, remember, Ruth is going to a foreign land. Here's what that means. She was leaving behind the security of home, the security of the future. And here was a, here's what awaited Ruth in Bethlehem. The potential for prejudice, discrimination, and poverty. That's what awaited Ruth. Prejudice, discrimination, poverty. You see, she was going to a land where she didn't look like anybody else. Her culture was very different. She came from a country that worshipped other gods. But she knew the will of Yahweh, the God of promise. So she was prepared to step out into the unknown, having put her faith in Naomi's God. And it's possible that some here this morning, you're faced with a decision in your life. You're not sure what's going to happen. You're not sure about the future. Maybe you're not sure about your job. You're not sure about your education. Maybe you're not sure about your family. Maybe you have a major decision. You're not sure what the future holds. I imagine every one of us has been there at one time or another. And from our perspective, it seems unsettling if we just don't know, if we don't know the future. But if we surrender ourselves completely to God, every aspect 
of our lives. If we surrender our finances, if we surrender our future, our comforts, and even our families in the way that we think, well, here's how family ought to look like. If we surrender all that to God, here's what's going to happen. He's going to accomplish all things to work together for good. To those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. But you see, it begins first with surrender. We don't test the waters and say, hey, God, I'm going to test and see how you do here. No, we surrender first, not knowing what the future holds. And we trust in him fully. God's purposes cannot and will not be thwarted. Let's see what happens next in our story. Chapter 1, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's a lot going on here in this passage. When the two of them arrived in Bethlehem, the women, they recognized Naomi, even though years have passed. They're like, Naomi! It's you, Naomi! No, I changed my name. Don't call me the pleasant one. I'm the bitter one now. Mara means bitter one. She changed her own name. I am now the bitter one because God has turned against me. Thankfully, Naomi had the most optimistic daughter-in-law a person could ever pray for. The most caring and compassionate daughter-in-law. The name Ruth, it means compassionate one. And even more specifically, it means compassionate friend. Ruth, this foreigner, would become the friend of Naomi's people. In a strange land, among strangers, Ruth would play a major role in the history of Israel. And at the end of this passage here, in verse 22, it says that they arrived during the barley harvest. That's important to know. We don't know much about the barley harvest today. We don't have barley harvest today. But back then, the barley harvest was very important because here's what would happen. The reapers would gather the grain from the fields during the harvest. And this was a program that God had instituted by law, which stated that the reapers when they gathered the grain, they had to leave some grain in the field so that the poor could come by afterward and that they'd have something to eat. 
It was, it was a beautiful provision instituted by God for the people. It was called gleaning in the fields. And so the poor would glean. They'd come after the harvesters and they'd glean what was left in the rest of the field. And here's what happens in chapter 2, verse 3. So she, Ruth, went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now let's just stop right there. It says, so she went out. Okay. What you want to know is this. Gleaning is hard work. It was a chore. So just before this, Ruth goes to her mother-in-law, Naomi, please allow me to work. She goes there, not to sit on her hands, she goes there to work in the fields. Now, I imagine all your kids, when they were growing up, that they were wonderful kids, obedient, and they loved doing their chores. I, I imagine that. Okay, I imagine every kid, right, we, we just love doing chores. I want you to picture, I want you to imagine if a child of yours came up to you, Mom, Dad, can I please, can I please pull the weeds in the backyard? Mom, Dad, can I please do all the laundry? Mom, Dad, I'm dying to clean the toilets. Please, please, can you just go take a nap, Mom and Dad? I want to clean the toilets. That'd be a miracle, right? Nobody would want to do a chore like that. Ruth goes to her mother-in-law and says, Can I please go and glean in the fields? She's ready to work. And I love how it says in the middle of that verse, in verse 3, as it turned out. Some of your translations say, it happened that it just so happened. Whenever you see that phrase, what that means is, by coincidence, but not really by coincidence. You see, because nothing happens by coincidence when God's involved. Nothing. So when Boaz noticed Ruth, he asked his foreman, hey, who is that young woman gleaning in our fields? I've never seen her before. And the foreman said, well, that's Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And Boaz remembered that he had heard what a faithful daughter-in-law Ruth was. And so he called Ruth, and he said, I've heard of the marvelous things you've done for your mother-in-law. And so when Ruth went back to work in the fields, Boaz called his foreman over. Hey, come over here. Make sure you accidentally leave extra bundles of grain for her. You know what I'm talking about? You got me? You got me, right? And the foreman's like, yes, boss. I understand clearly. And that night, Ruth took home extra grain for her and her mom. You see, Boaz made sure that Ruth was taken care of. When Ruth got home, little did she know that Boaz was a relative of Elimelech's, which thrilled Naomi because now Boaz could serve as Ruth's kinsman, redeemer. Coincidence? Of course not. 
And the rest, as they say, is history. Except it almost didn't happen. It almost didn't happen in this love story. You see, when Ruth proposed to Boaz, that's right, you heard me correctly. When Ruth proposed to Boaz, and you can read all about that in chapter 3, there was a certain custom that permitted you know, a lady at that time to offer herself in marriage to the man. When she proposed to Boaz, Boaz said yes. And then the rest is history. Except, again, it almost didn't happen. Because Boaz said yes, but he realized, wait a minute, wait. There's another relative of Elimelech who's closer to you. And Boaz, being the honorable man that he was, he went to that man and he gave that man the opportunity to redeem the land. And so the man said, yes, I will redeem the land. Remember, we said the land was important in Israel. You see, because God made provision for every family to keep land within their family's name. And so the man said, yes, I will redeem the land. But Boaz, here's where Boaz is really smooth. He's really smart. He leaves the, the good part for the end. He says, oh, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, if you redeem the land, you have to take the people on the land. That includes Ruth and her mother-in-law. And this relative realized if he takes the land and takes Ruth and Naomi, he would forfeit his own inheritance. So he says, sorry, I can't do it. It's all yours. And so Boaz becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Ruth conceives, and she bears a son. And you can only imagine how overjoyed Ruth and Boaz were. The only person who was more excited about the birth than them was Grandma Naomi. Right? Because right, the people that were most excited about the birth are grandparents. And here's what happens in chapter 4, verse 16. Then Naomi, by the way, I'm going to stop right there for a second. Uh, her name goes back to being Naomi now. She's no longer the bitter one. She's now the pleasant one again because she has a grandson. Then Naomi took the child into her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Out of brokenness and sorrow, God faithfully brought hope. He faithfully brought hope and a future. The Word of God tells us that Obed became the father of Jesse, who became the father of of David. And it was from the line of David that the Redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ, would come. Do you believe that God has sovereign control over the affairs of our lives? I hope you do. And he will accomplish all things to work together for those who love him. He can undo a wrong. He can undo and overrule even the biggest of wrongs that you've made or suffered. Never underestimate what God can do in our lives. God is sovereign today as he was in the days of Ruth. 
And he's inviting us to surrender ourselves completely to him. So my encouragement is this. Like Ruth, let's not follow our heart. Let's follow God's will. And that's not to say that our heart and God's will are mutually exclusive. That's not to say that. You see, the beauty of following God's will is this. The more we align ourselves, the more we align our heart to God's will and to his heart, the more we will understand what his heart is. That's why David, in the Psalms, remember David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz, that's why David could write this in Psalm 37, verse 4. And I end with this. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if we don't follow our heart, but instead follow God's will, he will give us the desires of our hearts, because our hearts will be in tuned with his will. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story of redemption. So go forth this week, my friends, and be encouraged by his word. Take delight in him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for this beautiful story of redemption. Thank you for the, using the lives of The lives of people who are just like us, flawed, but used by you for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you have the power to overrule, to intervene, and you call us to surrender ourselves whole, wholly to you. As we do that, we will know your heart, God, and help us, give us the power to follow your heart this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.